This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. And welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast, episode 80 to be precise, where this time we're going to be discussing what the fans seem to make of Curse of the Black Spot and the Doctor's Wife. With me on this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, we have a very special guest. Well, to be honest, I just found him loitering outside the camper van. It's Stephen from Radio Free Scarrow. Hello, Stephen. Hi, I've been camped out here for about the past three nights. I banged on the door for the first night. Nobody listened. And then it just kind of got comfortable, actually. Um, so, you know, if you could just pop me back out there when we're done here, that'd be excellent. If you don't mind a, a squatter for the next couple of days, because uh, we don't record until Sunday. So I got some time to kill. Do you know, whoever we have as a guest in the camper van complains. We had the Ucast saying the toilet was too far away. We had Chip saying that he kept on getting locked in a box or something. He had difficulty with uh, actually leaving the camper van. And, and now you've been waiting around for three days. I mean, for a show that's about time travel, it's far too many people either end up waiting for ages or get locked up. I don't know what it was, the time difference too or something like that. But you're not in Australia, though. I imagine if it was on uh, Australia where Trev is right now, I'd still be waiting. Or perhaps would be done. I have no idea, actually. <laughs> it all depends on um, on what mood people are in, I think. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> but before we get into the meat and potatoes of this particular podcast, Stephen, you better tell just the three or four listeners that we've got who don't know what Radio Free Scarrow is. Well, Radio Free Scarrow, James, I'm glad you asked me that question. Uh, is a uh, Doctor Who podcast based out of Canada, of all places. Um, one of the longest running. I think uh, if, if I look at the, the stats correctly, I think there's Podshock is the longest running. And we're third. And there's a German podcast, a German language podcast that started up not long after Podshock called WhoCast. That is actually the second longest running. So we're the second longest running English speaking Doctor Who podcast out there. Well, well. What do you make of the German podcast, Steve? Um, I don't make much of it because I don't speak German. So <laughs> Not I'm sure it's really good, though. I mean, you know, I have no idea. I, I find it awesome that there's, you know, almost 200 episodes worth of a German podcast out there. I, I just find that fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. You enjoying Series 6 so far? I love it. Um, I, I've I've loved all f- four episodes. I'm, I I, m- I remember looking forward to the whole split season thing for dramatic purposes. But uh, once I watched the Doctor's Wife, I suddenly dawned on the realization that there's only three episodes left until the <laughs> fall. So I kind of hate it now, but it's been good. <laughs> but in in terms of storytelling, and uh, we, we're seeing something quite different, I think, attempted by the production crew here. I mean, is that affecting the way that you or your two? compatriots on Radio Free Scarrow are, are consuming Doctor Who or, or the way that you're digesting it? Does it still create the same satisfying full stomach feeling that uh, Series 1 to 5 did? Well, I think I, well, I think we're kind of been thrown for a bit of a loop in the way that it's, it, Series 6 is, you know, Series 5 sort of almost followed along the same uh, lines as laid down by RTD, you know. You, just the way it was structured, you know, an old enemy comes back in four and five, two-parter, this and this and this. It's just, it was structured the same way. It was a very safe transition to what we have now. And now with the split season, you just, you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, you know, we're expecting to see a bad wolf thing, just one story arc going through the entire thing, but we're not. There's two or three things going on. The eye patch lady and and the strange girl in, in, in Impossible Astronaut and the silence and all that. So and really, Rory dying every episode. <laughs> Rory dying every episode. So there's, I'm I'm sort of throwing all expectations out the window right now. I'm just sort mm-hmm. of sitting back and enjoying the ride because I don't. I, I often feel stupid when speculating because I know I'll be horribly wrong. I don't want egg on my face, <laughs> even if it's only to myself. Like, oh God, I feel stupid. I'm so glad I never told anybody my theory about that. Um, oh. 
so I, it's it's just been a nice series to, to sit back and 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 not bother to speculate because you know what whatever I think Stephen Moffat will think of something different and better so why am I going to bother so but I've been I've been enjoying it a lot though. Now it's, it's quite interesting you say you're kind of taping as taking a step back really from the speculation side because I think given the nature of, of the the season story that Moffat is telling speculation amongst fandom has never been so rife and it's never been so crazy as well I think and that's that, that's mainly because people simply have not got a clue <laughs> where Moffat is going with this particular story and I think Doctor Who is, is better for it and uh, yeah I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying Series 6 too but having said that there's an awful lot more I think you can nitpick about and uh, that's something I think that um, recording with Chris uh, you have to listen to quite a bit of. Well, recently he's sort of been finding this one little thing that's been niggling at the back of his mind and sort of has to pick it apart like, you know, proper CPR method and pull, pull the open doors and, you know, editing on the action and this sort of thing. And so I... If he's only complaining of a little minute, and I do mean minute details like that, uh, I can only assume he's enjoying this series a lot because he used to back in the RTD era. I used to complain about entire plot arcs to be, you know, being the problem. So if he's only complaining about that, I, I think it's a fine season. Okay, and into the most enthralling part of this podcast, it's the stats section. Yay, stats. We like stats, we like stats. Okay, <laughs> okay. Curse of the Black Spot, the final Barb figure is in at 7.85 million, and it attracted an audience appreciation index of 86, which I think is actually quite good, even though it might fly in the face of general opinion, I think, within fandom. Well, what's it been? It's been what eighty six for that is the low, I think. I think Day of the Moon also hit eighty six, and and I think the high has been Impossible Astronaut at eighty eight. So we're really talking about a, just a minute fluctuation in between episodes here. It's it's nothing. It's nothing crazy like the forty nine that Don't Scare the Hair got. So I think it's doing a lot better. <laughs> do you get to see Don't Scare the Hair, Stephen, as well? Um, do I get to see it? No, uh, thankfully it's not broadcast here, so I'd have to go and search for it. <laughs> well, which presumably you don't. Um, I think this is one of the really interesting things when you're discussing British or watching uh, British TV series from America or overseas, and it works both ways as well. People seem to think that the BBC produce absolute high quality content all the time. We still get our don't scare the hairs. We just don't sell it to anybody. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. You know, we, it's like it's the same with films. You know, we get all these wonderful British or other foreign film imports. We go, wow, all these foreign films are excellent. Yeah. No, they're only sending you the best stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that only works both ways. Anyway, on to the Doctor's Wife, Stephen. Doctor's Wife, what did it have? 5.9 million uh, viewers uh, on the overnight ratings. But at the time of recording, that's all we have. Um, mm. And a 28.6% share. Now, that was the same night as the Eurovision Song Contest, which for this Canadian is baffling event that you Brits gather around the television and tweet about every year. And I just, I've never understood why, but... And that's that's the gulf between our two nations, I guess, James. But well, um, I can't really give you an explanation either, Stephen. I have no idea okay. why we're so fascinated with it. It's absolute tripe. But there you go. <laughs> You're obviously not one of the 9.4 million people that watch that. Then, but um, I, I think that uh, it's uh, there's been a great line that Stephen Moffat said in uh, in an uh, interview with SFX Magazine, where he said the broadcast date, the premiere date, is is no longer like a broadcast date it's a it's a release date and that over the course of the week so many people are going back to watch it or like pvring it and if you look at like all the the iplayer viewings i mean crikey there's been 1.4 million i think uh, for mm. impossible astronaut in the first week i think day of the moon almost had that in the first three days so it's not like it's not like the overnight figures are as important anymore of course the, the press pick it up because they need instantaneous news and they see overnight figures and they say there you go that's the ratings that's how many people watch but of course it it usually increases by about two to three million by the time the final ratings have come through and that's not even including the iPlayer no absolutely I think the the overnight figures has even less meaning now than they did you know two or three years or so ago and I, I think it's very true television is very much uh, it, it is you know transmission date is a very grand title for you know, when a, a program is first aired, but essentially it's the first time it becomes available. And because people watch it using time shifting 
I don't know, habits, or if that's the right way of describing it. People watch it much later, in other words. You know, the difference between overnights and the final ratings are just massive. Well, let's move on to the really interesting part of this podcast, the genuinely interesting part of this podcast, and that's to take a look at what fans have been saying about Curse of the Black Spot and, more predominantly, uh, the Doctor's wife. And I have to say, listeners, you've been absolutely prolific in your feedback this time. We've had the most audio feedback that we've, I think, ever received uh, for a particular episode. And we're going to start with a piece of feedback from Kevin McLeod, who's got a few comments on Curse the black spot. Stephen, do you want to do a pirate impression? Yar, this be Kevin McLeod's thoughts of Curse of the Black Spot. That's remarkably good. Hello, my name is Kevin McLeod, and I'm leaving some feedback about the Curse of the Black Spot. First of all, I should probably say I didn't like it. I thought it was a little bit obvious, uh, and some of the themes have been used before in Doctor Who. I agreed with uh, some of Trevor's points uh, about it being a bit of a repeat of things that have been seen before and done in a very unnecessary fashion. I also think that, uh, that, that Hugh Bonneville played a very good part and I think we, we will find out more about his exploits in later episodes in the series. As far as the actual uh, filming of the episode is concerned, I thought they did a very good job. I thought the enclosed nature of the of the show was reminiscent of horror fang rock and such claustrophobic base under siege episodes of the Troughton era. As far as the eye patch lady is concerned, I agree with Trevor that it did feel a little bit bad wolf in its in its insertion into the episode. I believe that this is as a result of the decision to make the episode appear earlier in the run as it was originally planned. And perhaps this was crowbarred in a little bit, perhaps done in overproduction. I enjoy the podcast, guys. Keep it up. I enjoy listening to your opinions on Doctor Who each week. Kevin McLeod, bye. Okay, well, thanks, Kevin, for that feedback. Yeah, a couple of things I'd like to pick up on. Um, You mentioned something that Trev mentioned, and that's that Stephen Moffat reuses certain little things. Sometimes, you know, they just... Like the portals, for example, on the pirate ship are very similar to the portals in God in the Fireplace. And is, is that cleverly all woven together, or is it just a case of Stephen Moffat reusing the same kind of trick? What do you think, Stephen? Well, I mean, Robert Holmes constantly inserted Holmesian double acts and various other little bits that he's become famous for and we celebrate him for. But when you think about it, there's there's all sorts of similarities that pop up in his scripts. And, and we, we Robert Holmes is the greatest writer that Doctor Who ever knew, and, and we never really fault him for that. So I don't, I don't see there being that much of a problem. I mean, it's not like Terry Nation scripts where the entire, the exact same thing happens in every single story whether there's Daleks in it or not. So I don't see there, there being that much of a problem to it. And in fact, it wasn't even Stephen Moffat who wrote it, but he, he probably influenced it. Uh, at least he probably tapped Stephen Thompson on the shoulder and said, put this in and then this and then that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's different. I think executive producers these days have kind of motifs. And I think Stephen Moffat's got a slightly more interesting range of motifs than perhaps RTD or even previous producers. And I, I don't have a major problem with him using the same kind of tricks here and there, writing on the wall, that kind of thing, um, provided he doesn't overdo it. And I don't think he's got to that point yet, or at least in my my opinion. But yes, yeah, certainly your comments concerning Eyepatch Lady, who I thought we were going to get a name for uh, in this week's episode, and we didn't. Uh, so she's going to have to be continued to be referred to as Eyepatch Lady. Um, similarity to Bad Wolf there. And yeah, you felt that it was crowbarred into the script. And I, I don't really agree with that I have to say I I felt because the entire story was all about different universes and you know two universes occupying the same space and time or something like that anyway it felt quite appropriate to have a scene where there was you know a lady looking in from a different universe and and to say that it was possibly because this episode was moved up the transmission order I think has absolutely nothing to do with it because the scene in which the eyepatch lady appeared, had Amy waking up and looking in that direction. So if that were the case, they'd have had to film that scene 
extra special. But Stephen, any any theories about that? Well, plus it was in, also in the boat set because I thought the same thing too. Uh, this, of course, was initially set for I think episode ten on uh, the second half of the season. And you can sort of tell that the end hardest scene in, in Curse of the Black Spot is probably a pickup just to sort of tie in various um, uh, elements of, of the plot with the, the baby and such like that, and the doctor's going to die and, and all that sort of stuff. But the actual... I mean, it, it would take a lot of money to reconstruct that boat set for a short 12-second yeah. scene of Amy waking up. So that, I think, is 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 you know, original in, in its, in its placement, which, which really makes you think now, um, because if that was an original scene in episode 10 and we're still only finding out what the, you know, we're still only seeing cameo appearances from Patch lady. When are we ever going to find out about this woman? Um, it might not even be this year because precisely we, we were teased last year, with the silence and everything like that. So if you're wanting a resolution to the Patch lady storyline, don't hold your breath. Okay, leading into our next piece of feedback, this is from Martin Thompson. Thank you, Martin, for your comments. Let's hear what you've got to say. Hi, gents. I thought I'd just drop you a bit of feedback. Uh, first of all, on um, the positioning of the Curse of the Black Spot. Uh, personally, I thought it was positioned fine in the schedules. They did swap it with uh, the Doctor's Wife, and I think after two sort of fairly confusing episodes like, um, like the opening two-parter, I think you needed that little sort of adventure romp, that little bit of filler. Uh, just before you got into something like the Doctor's Wife, and then of course we get onto the Rebel Flesh two-parter, which leads into the cliffhangers, etc. Anyway, uh, this week's episode, the Doctor's Wife, uh, has got to be one of my favourite ones of the Matt Smith era so far. It was just absolutely brilliant. Uh, Saran Jones and Matt Smith got on, uh, got, I thought, got on brilliantly. A great amount of chemistry between them, and uh, so much better than she was in the Sarah Jane adventures with, uh, with the Mona Lisa. I mean, I can see some people moaning about about that new console, that oh, they're travelling through time without an outer shell, and they refer to before as TARDIS is being, uh, being grown and not built, but to be honest, I don't care. It was it was just brilliant. Uh, the cor- yeah, the, the corridors on the TARDIS, mm, yeah, the promise of new rooms it was good, but... Now we just get some corridors which just like just like generic stuff, just like a another spaceship, you know. Uh, it's good to see the old console room again, and you know I can't be the only one who's hoping that they they steadily move to the next room and we get to see Peter Davison's TARDIS in all its brightly lit glory. Um, yeah, but uh, the Ood as well. I mean, the Ood as well could have been replaced by any other monster, but then again, I suppose that's Doctor Who uh, budget saving as well. You've got the costume, so why not? Who's the monster? It's, it's, again, it lends a nice little thing to the mythology, as well about the Ood. Just well, in a wider universe, that you know the Ood could pop up anywhere, which is a nice, which is a nice thing, really. Um, anyway, that's all I've got to say so far. I'm uh, enjoying the series so far, and uh, goodbye. Okay, Martin, thanks very much. Again, interesting comment. So uh, the one I'd like to pick up on in particular is the console travelling on its own. And yeah, that's not actually completely original. That harks back to at least two stories from the classic series that I can think of, and that's The Mind Robber and Inferno, where the console it was completely independent of its outer shell am i missing any other classic stories there do you think he actually had it out in um ambassadors of death as well he never traveled anywhere but um i remember i remember seeing that back in the day and i thought is this what the tardis looks like inside because they never actually showed him take the console out of the tardis so for years i was just cons- well actually a week until inferno aired i was so confused as to why the tardis was outside of the the tardis console was outside of the tardis but yes it's it's been done before but not to this extent i think Mm. In, in terms of the corridors, and I think, to be fair, judging by the amount of feedback uh, mentioning corridors, we could have an entire segment on TARDIS corridors. Uh, we won't, but uh, but yeah, Martin, you said that you didn't think they were too impressive, and I have to say I do, I do agree with you. They were very bog-standard corridors for me um, that could have come out of almost any uh, sci-fi program. So no, I wasn't overly impressed with them, but it didn't detract from how well the performers performed uh, during those quite horrific scenes in the corridors at times. So, yeah, although the corridors bothered me, but the actual scenes in them and the story being told within the corridors, I felt was absolutely fine. I think I think there was a, there was a th- uh, sort of a thematic um, synergy, if you will, between the corridors and the way that, you know, the console shape, they're all hexagonal and such like that. Now, I get the impression that it's all the rooms that are 
wonderful and amazing like console rooms and swimming pools and libraries and such and and it's the it's just the functional corridors that sort of changed places in between whenever the rearranging rooms or something like that so mm. you know it it might have made for not necessarily the best corridors to look at it seemed very cold actually i wouldn't think that there'd be such cold steel doors in the tardis but uh it beats disused hospital doors anytime i guess <laughs> indeed what did you think of um the production crew or the story revisiting the previous TARDIS console room. I think a lot of um, of us glorified fanboys would probably have just adored if he walked into Peter Davison's console room at the Doctor Who experience and just shot from there. Um, but <laughs> you know, because but really, we we got a TARDIS wall in the in the makeshift TARDIS that the Doctor made anyway. But it's it's funny though because you look at because uh, of course this was slated for last year's series five, mm-hmm. and whenever they're doing a Doctor Who confidential, they tour the new TARDIS set, and right next door is the old David Tennant set. And I remember just wondering why is that still up? They shouldn't be having taking up a huge whack. Of their studio spaces to keep this TARDIS set up and so they've had to keep it up for like probably a lot longer than they, they originally intended but uh, it's it's probably dismantled now and taken to the, the Doctor Who experience now. Well I wonder because I've been to the Doctor Who experience and I'm pretty certain the one of the experience is smaller it's got to be smaller because I was really surprised at how minute that set really is and I went there believing it was the one that they used in Cardiff and it's everything's just so close together. The three seats is far too close to the console. It's smaller. It's disproportionate. So I think the set they've actually got in Cardiff hasn't actually moved. I could be wrong there, but uh, the set certainly on television looks considerably larger than it does uh, within uh, Olympia too. That's that's the magic of television, James. Maybe it is. Maybe <laughs> it is. But uh, anyway, let's uh, let's talk about the last thing that uh, Martin mentioned in his feedback, and that was the fact that the Oods could have been pretty much any returning monster. I mean, yeah, I think you probably got a point there. It made sense, though. I mean, the Ood has sort of had a history of, of being servitors to, to various people, and that's pretty much what this Ood did as well. And also the translator actually plays a, a part in the plot as well. Once he fixes it, he, hear all, he hears all the Time Lord distress signals, so... I don't think you would have got that out of a Slavine or a Jadoon or something like that, yeah. Or a Murka. Or a Murka, if they still have that costume kicking around, yeah. <laughs> Probably just behind the TARDIS set that they use uh. for Tenant. Anyway, but yes, uh, I think that's quite possible. I mean, it's nice to see the Ood again, I think, and, you know, slightly different colour eyes. And also interesting to see Russell T. Davies get his first credit, um, <laughs> you know, since, what, two years ago now? I joked about, I think I joked about this on Radio Free Scarrow. The first time I saw that, I, I misread Ood and I thought it said God, a God <laughs> created by Russell T. Davies. And I thought that would have been a perfect credit for him to insert. Yes, it would have, <laughs> it would have been, yes. But, uh, but yeah, probably something RTD would not have disagreed with himself. But yeah, uh, but yeah go on, let's... Uh, let's 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 move on to some feedback we've received from Andrew Natton, uh, and he sent it by way of email this time. How very old-fashioned. Andrew Mm. says, Well, there's not much I can say about the Doctor's Wife beyond I'm torn. I can't decide. Is that my favorite episode of Who Since Blink, or my favorite since Caves of Androzani? Obvious bits first. Matt Smith and Arthur Darvill are superb actors. Saran Jones put in the best guest performance since Derek Jacobi's turn as the master. Karen Gillan, well, looks really great running down those endless corridors. And didn't those corridors look brilliant? Uh-huh. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not according to Martin Thompson, no. Um, in fact, the set designers deserve a medal for this episode. Brilliant atmospheric stuff, uh, except for the old console room. How much better would that have been if they'd run into eights TARDIS or fours? <laughs> There we go. Uh, anyway, I digress. The whole point of my email is this next short, I promise, paragraph. Here we go. Well, be- before you go straight into that, I, th- I think it would be worthwhile mentioning um, the uh, suggestion that they went into an older TARDIS um, TARDIS set. I think, to be fair, it's quite possible, and it- it's happened already, I know, that many people are going to look back on this episode and think, well, this wasn't particularly accessible to non-fans. I think had they gone into something looking as retro as the fourth Doctor's TARDIS, that would have just exacerbated that particular problem. So, yeah, from a fan's point of view, I'd like to have seen the first Doctor's console, quite frankly. But um, given that, I think it was just never going never gonna to work in storytelling terms. Um, I was quite happy with eight stroke nines, eight stroke tens. Nine stroke tens, yeah, I, yeah. There was there was more of an emotional connection to more people when they saw the yeah. old David Tennant control room. Andrew continues. Here we go. Here's the paragraph that he promised. 
I've seen some whinging on fora. Ooh, forums, plural. He's very smart. Mm. About this episode being an inaccessible, dense, fan-wanky piece of trash that casual viewers won't get. Tosh. My fiance loved it, even if she admitted half the joy was the grin plastered across my mug for 45 minutes. And various casuals I follow on Twitter loved it. So my point, finally, is this. How great would Doctor Who be if we got an episode like that once a season? I would happily put up with stuff like Curse of the Black Spot, Vampires of Venice, and Tenant's entire first season if, once a year, we got something rich, layered, fun, and exciting that sheds a little more light on the Doctor, the TARDIS, and the universe they inhabit. Especially if it was written by someone as great as Neil Gaiman. What do you think? Well, I mean, Doctor Who's format sort of allows for such stories to be placed in, you know, sort of marquee stories. We had, I suppose some people might say that Vincent the Doctor sort of fulfilled that role, where you get a big giant big name author coming in to write a story that's sort of, that's more of a character piece than, than an actual, you know, piece to fit into the overall story arc. I don't think this one, you know, you could technically take. Uh, the doctor's wife out of the running order, and and you wouldn't miss anything in regards to the like how the whole story goes, but you'll miss a lot in regards to a really good episode that you've just watched. So, I think it could work. I don't know who else you'd put in there who would write an episode in series seven. Maybe Russell D Davies. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> I'm sure it's going to happen. You know, he he will come back and write an episode of Doctor Who. I'm absolutely certain of it. But um, but in terms of accessibility, I think to people who don't necessarily have any idea what the TARDIS is and so on. I mean, do, do you think people who are criticising the show for that have got any grounds for, for, for complaints? You know what, I, I remember watching this the first time, and, and uh, I, I usually watch these episodes with my with my girlfriend the first time through, but on this occasion uh, she was out, and so I was, I'm not going to wait until she gets home and watching this. And <laughs> I, I sort of, because of that, I sort of watch Doctor Who now with sort of an eye to into the real world, so to speak. So I, I almost feel kind of guilty when... I'm being pandered to a little too much when it comes to references to the old series or stuff that I understand that other people might not. So I did actually feel a little bit of guilt, if you will, while watching some of this, thinking, oh, I'm enjoying this much more than she can possibly do. And I feel kind of bad for that. And I, I don't necessarily think that should be the case with, with too many Doctor Who stories. And when you look at it, there's a lot of really subtle stuff that Neil Gaiman's put in there. Let's face it, it's, it's there because he knows the entire history of the show and he's putting it in there and using it. He's not abusing it. So I, I, there, some people might have a little bit of uh, an issue with it and, and that might be um, plausible, but I don't think uh, it's as, as bad as the very few people that have trashed it think it is. Mm, no, I think if we were to see an entire season, you know, told in exactly the same way that this story was, then we probably would end up having justifiable grounds for concern uh, that we might see people just tune out purely because they've got no idea what was going on but I think certainly there's at least a space for for one episode a season as um as Andrew suggests and yeah you know I've, I've watched it on two occasions now and I have to say the first occasion I, I, I didn't think it was that brilliant I have to say and I, I'm not overly uh, impressed with it on the second viewing either I think it's a I think it's an episode that's masquerading as a very very important episode of Doctor Who that is actually quite disposable and it's not fundamental really uh, to to Doctor Who as a, as, as a landmark episode and therefore I think people who don't know the show show really well can watch it and if they pay attention to all of the dialogue particularly the lines that talk about the TARDIS being a person and and the the history the TARDIS has clearly got with the Doctor then I think they can appreciate it it might be a bit of a struggle and those with very limited attention spans may switch off or watch a recorded version of Don't Scare the Hair perhaps but yeah on on the whole I, I don't think there's much much cause for concern there. Right, moving on to Robert Konigsberg. And Robert, I have been meaning to mention you on the podcast ever since we met at Gallifrey. And thank you very much indeed for all of the uh, the feedback. It was good to have a beer with you and good to have your support when we lost to the Oodcast. Um, <laughs> and and the thank you, Rob. Robert leaves uh, many a comment on my on my <laughs> chronic hysteresis blog rundown. I'm watching every Doctor Who story, every, every Doctor Who episode and writing a blog post on it. And Robert leaves many a, many a post about... Uh, each episode. Robert, I promise I will finish the blog eventually. <laughs> so it sounds like Robert has got far too much time on his hands. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Robert, thanks very much for your feedback and uh, and here's what you got to say. Hey there, folks. Uh, so here's my thoughts on The Doctor's Wife. Uh, be prepared. It's basically a big old love uh, fest. 
It, it was wonderful. It was sublime. Um, I felt that the ending, which shows the Doctor's real affection for the TARDIS, was likely a, project, a projection of Neil Gaiman's real affection for the show. <clears throat> Whether or not that's true, of course, is another matter, but that was a love story for the fans, and particularly for longtime fans, I'm sure. Uh, having our first interior peeks into the TARDIS were great. Uh, they only showed a small bit of the interior, but there was enough there to let our imaginations run wild. Uh, from an emotional perspective, I haven't gotten that emotional about an episode since Vincent and the Doctor, and I haven't been left with such a good feeling since the whole Everybody Lives uh, episode. And actually, I probably was left with a better feeling uh, from this episode than that one. And lastly, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce her name, but uh, her performance of Idris was really spot on, don't you think? I think it was right on the money. Without her performance and without Matt Smith's performance, and even thanks to a solid, bolder characterization and performance by Arthur Darville, this uh, instant classic could instead have been a forgettable mess. Thanks again. Keep up the good work on the show. Bye. So there, there seems to be a great deal more love, I think, for Arthur Darville um, this year. Not, not that he wasn't getting it last year. I think he has really great comic timing with... Um, with Matt Smith, and it's good to see he's getting some recognition. I thought he was actually quite fabulous in this, as the the old, the old man version of himself, and yes. going all mental uh, about Amy, and, and it was kind of a terrifying performance, actually, that short little 12 seconds that we saw him on air, and, you know, probably the four hours of makeup that they had to endure to actually get it, but, uh, no, it's good to see um, Arthur Darvel getting the love from the fans. Mm, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I've got to ask you a question. When he said, Amy, you've done it again. You've left me for another 2,000 years. <laughs> was your first reaction to smile? Or did, did it not take you out of the story a little bit, despite how horrific the actual images that you were seeing were? No, because the, his performance was so... I mean, he wasn't He wasn't saying that he, he she left him for 2,000 years. He was saying, you know, I, he was referring to the fact that he waited 2,000 years. Again, for because her. she'd left him 2,000 years again in the corridor. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. So, uh, so, so I, and I couldn't stop laughing. You, oh, well, I just thought it was... <laughs> it just sounds silly, but just the, the conviction that Darvo really put into that and banging his head against the wall, he was just, just fantastic in that short little scene. Yeah, I, it was no, really, really I, I do agree he's a good actor. I think he's always been a good actor. I think he's had considerably more to get his teeth into in this series, and I, I think it's more of a case of the character of Rory developing and becoming much more the access point for the viewer as opposed to Amy. I mean, Amy really, really divides opinion amongst fans, and I'm sure the casual viewers as well, but everyone loves a Rory. <laughs> and um, I, th- I think he's really reveling in that and Arthur Darville stepping up to the plate and I've got to be honest this is the only thing I've ever seen Arthur Darville acting and when I first saw him I thought he was a you know fairly wet drippy didn't play the part of much conviction but of course that was precisely what he was supposed to do so I, I do agree with you and I think Arthur Darville deserves his recognition that he's receiving this season. Here's another email from Simon Patamore. It's a very short one, but it's very effective. Here it is. The Doctor's Wife. Oh dear, a complete disaster. A sad day for us all. I knew this would happen one day. Doctor Who has now officially peaked. No future episodes will ever be quite this good. All future writers should just give up now. Neil Gaiman has won. (laughs) So it sounds like Simon liked it after all. Do you get that impression? Just a little bit. Do you think there was a little bit too much Neil Gaiman hype leading into this this episode? Because I enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as others. And I, I feel that the, those who like Neil Gaiman's work sort of almost had this you know, vision in their heads that before they even seen it that it was the greatest episode ever made. I think that's a really good point, and I'm coming from the point of view that I'd never heard of Neil Gaiman <laughs> before. I wasn't familiar with any of his work, and I, no, I haven't done any kind of research. I'm, I think the most kind of, or the reason I have the knowledge that I do is be, because I've been listening to Chip's podcast uh, that he released just prior to transmission of these episodes in the UK. And I think you could be right. I mean, everybody seems to think that Neil Gaiman is God, let alone Russell T. Davis, as we mentioned earlier. But I I think it's a clever story. It's as simple as that. And I, I'm with you in as much as that I don't think it was the best story ever told. And I've seen, you know, all of the 
hyper hyperbole that's the correct word isn't it that yeah. um that, that that's on every single doctor who forum wow neil gaiman is a god this is a wonderful episode i mean there was even an interview i think with the bbc the day after transmission where people could send in questions to him about his writing process and not even richard curtis did that last year so yeah i think there's been an awful lot made of the fact that neil gaiman has written this episode but it's kind of washed over me a little bit I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, and I think hearing how huge Neil Gaiman is in the the sci-fi fantasy world of novels and comics and such like that, uh, and to hear how you know a lot of people apparently are asking him now, like you know, wow, I've I've just seen Doctor Who for the first time. It's wonderful, you know, because they were drawn in because of him. It's interesting that sometimes an actor, say Kylie Minogue or some other big name, you know, stunt casting will sometimes. Uh, lure in the the viewers to to watch them perform on Doctor Who, and you know it's the first time they've seen the show, and and so this is a rare case where it's almost stunt writing casting in a way. Yeah. Um, but it's talented, obviously. I mean, it is it is a really good episode. I mean, I I don't think it was as good as anything. You know, it's not as good. It's not a Caves of Vangelzani for me. That's my benchmark, and it's not an Impossible Planet or Utopia either. But uh, mm. it's it doesn't intend to be either. That's the thing. No, I, I think it's good that they managed to attract some big name writers and famous people will always do the show some good and I would much rather them do stunt writing than put someone like Kylie Minogue um, who could be played so much better by another actress um, you know, just, just to try and drag in the viewers. Uh, we've received some more audio feedback from Jason. Take it away, Jason. Hey guys, that's the Doctor Who podcast. Love the show. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to give some insight into what I saw from the last episode. I liked it. Uh, it was sure better than the last pirate episode. Uh, it was neat to see the TARDIS as a living, interactive character. You never see that. You know, you just see the Doctor kind of talking out loud and yet no response. So it was real neat to have some playback between the two. Yet the thing that caught my attention the most was the coat from the TARDIS to the Doctor that said, The only water in the forest is the river. The way it sounded was maybe it was a river song reference or uh, something else. Just kind of confusing, but it was interesting. Uh, maybe the title of the story, which was called The Doctor's Wife, was an allusion to that quote. Uh, what do you guys think? Okay, thanks, Jason, for that. Yeah, the TARDIS is a character, and I don't necessarily mean a... Um a machine because I think the TARDIS is a character irrespective of its guise but certainly as a human is a good concept I don't think that's ever been used in what well, it hasn't ever been used in televised Doctor Who before but it has appeared in previous media and certainly the BBC book range has really experimented with that and developed an entire story arc over several several books um, I think it was something like a type 1000 it almost got into Terminator numbers it was all very strange and compassion was a sentient TARDIS so the actual concept of having a TARDIS walking around talking having conversations with the doctor and so on is, is not a new one uh, but it's one that I'd like to see explored a little bit more on television perhaps how about you Steve have you read books in the past or have you come across this phenomena you know explored in other ways of telling Doctor Who stories in, in the past no, because I usually just stick to the stuff that's canon, uh, which is a polite way to get out of the fact that I don't read books. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I think part of the um, it was a, it was a great little moment. The central plot of of Neil Gaiman's story is that the Doctor is now able to talk to the TARDIS as a human being and actually have a dialogue after seven hundred odd years without having you know being able to do so. I think that the what we didn't hear said and what they would have liked to have said, you know. Um, is more tantalizing than actually hearing them, you know, sit down for coffee one day and talk about various things in the past that we remember. Um, so ooh, I hope they reference, you know, the edge of destruction. Boy, that would make my day. You know, that would be horrible for drama, though. It would be just, you know, we would. I don't think we need to see it again. It's it's tantalizing as it was. I think, especially their their goodbye scene, which I thought was so beautifully played by Matt Smith. I would hate to to sort of, you know, cheapen that scene by saying, oh, yes, the TARDIS is back now. So remember when you said hello, you know, instead of goodbye and such like that, that whole lovely scene? Well, you can forget that and just sort of talk about things now. So I think the one time is good, um, and it can live on in various other fanfic writers' minds, perhaps. Yeah. I, I, that particular scene, did that push the emotional buttons for you then? It did, because it, almost purely because of the uh, conviction of Matt Smith, because he, he, you know, for... Uh, all his skills, he's never really dips into 
sadness that much. You know, he's sort of melancholy when he's saying goodbye to little Amelia Pond in uh, in the Big Bang in series five. But he's actually sort of cries a little bit, and it's so believable because it's it's not it's not full on tears down streaming down the face kind of thing. It's just he's choking up a little bit, and it's it's it's, it's really sad. And then afterwards, when when it just disappears and such, he sort of you know straight you know straightens himself up a little bit and almost looks a little embarrassed that he's been that emotional. So the fact that he just sort of ever so slightly pushes that emotional button there. I think is what makes that scene so effective. He could have just been a blubbing idiot, and it would just said, "Oh God, he's you know he's just going off like some crazy person." But uh, hmm. his restrained performance, I think, really sold that scene for me. The other part of um, Jason's feedback refers to that tagline at the end, a game which I wasn't particularly a big fan of. Um, I've described it now as uh, Stephen Moffat's version of "He will knock four times." The only water in the forest is river. Um, and yeah, I think that definitely does refer to River. There's absolutely no question in my mind that that's going to come back and uh, we'll revisit that line later on in this series. Whether or not we'll see some kind of uh, role for the TARDIS to play, there remains to be seen. But for the reasons you said, Stephen, I think that's very unlikely. Yeah, I think I, it's it'd be difficult to think it's not about River either and it probably will happen fairly soon. It was signposted because the whole episode, the TARDIS... Idris is sort of spouting stuff in from different time zones and sort of predicting future and talking about the about the past. So it doesn't come as a surprise that she's all of a sudden sort of speaking these prophecies, so to speak. You know, it, it's not unfounded. So I believed it, which it's an interesting theory when you think about it. How that how the TARDIS knows everything from the future and the past yeah. and everything, and only only tells actually doesn't tell the Doctor what's going on. Just takes him to where he needs to go to deal with it. I think it's it's. It's quite a neat little idea that the now at the central core of the of the whole series, thanks to Game and Story. Yeah, and I think that actually was probably the biggest revelation we got the entire episode was the Doctor is almost omnipresence um, in in the fifth dimension. She knows what's happened, she knows what's going on, and she knows what's going to happen in the future. And you know that's referenced a few times, certainly with the number of times the Doctor changes the desktop wallpaper. We've got another twenty five or so iterations to go before um, before the Doctor dies. Anyway, we're going to play out with our last piece of feedback now. This is from Glenn Hibbert, who makes a couple of interesting points here. Take it away, Glenn. G'day James, Tom and Trev, Glenn here with my thoughts on The Doctor's Wife. The episode title, as we suspected, wouldn't be what we thought it would mean, and it wasn't, but oh how perfect a fit it was. What I particularly didn't like. Probably a little strong. I couldn't suspend my belief enough to agree that the Doctor could make it out as console in less than 18 minutes, but that's a minor thing. I didn't like that I barely batted an eyelid when the Doctor called the TARDIS sexy. I didn't like it because I'm becoming acclimatised to the sleaziness in New Who. Classic Who always had very pretty women and some were scantily dressed, but New Who was getting crowded with innuendo. What I particularly liked. House's mind games with Amy and Rory, pretty freaky. Amy's last round in particular was very grim. But perhaps it spoke for those of us who don't like Amy. Hate Amy. Kill Amy. I was really, really pleased that the big complicated word was alive and not the obvious one. And it left the word free to be placed in a much better place. And that is when the TARDIS slash says as her molecules disappears, I love you. Questions. Who exactly was Idris before she was the TARDIS? How did she fall through the universe? Line triumphs. The many good ones. I really don't know what to do. That's a new feeling. And I laughed at his delight in that. Focus. How? On what? I'm a madman with a box without a box. Did you wish really hard? And the cryptic, the only water in the forest is the river. Hmm. I'll leave that one to Tom to tackle, I think. And my favourite of all the lines. Hello, Doctor. It's so very, very nice to meet you. Pace. Excellent. I forgot watches existed. Actor's performance. Really starting to like Rory now. Amy was bearable in this episode. Light Adrian Schiller's uncle. So wonderfully underplayed. I loved it how he was hopeful that Idris had died to discover that she hadn't. The look on his face. Loved Sir Anne Jones. She did a splendid job as Idris slash human TARDIS. Really enjoyable. Along with the Doctor, I had a tear in my eye at the TARDIS's goodbye scene. Matt. 
was brilliant, especially the emotion near the end. So wonderful, so appropriate. Marigold's music, what's to say? It had everything that a composer could wish for. Fun music, action music, scary, emotional. Next time trailer. Well, we've had vampires, why not Frankenstein monsters as well? Notes on the writing. All the things Doctor Who is, both classic and new, are all in there. The alien planet, uh, corridors, humour, the horror. We even had the slow-moving monster coming up from behind. Very classic Who. And very new Who is the love story. The best love story I've seen in new Who. Gaiman has written a masterly script. I am very tempted to give this episode the highest, but I'll refrain. Doctor Who, season 6, episode 4. The Doctor's wife gets a David Tennant regenerating into a Matt Smith. Top stuff. Thanks, guys. Who was Idris or Idris before the Tar? Is it Idris or Idris? I never actually knew. She was sort of mentioned once and then became sexy, I think, from that point on. Yeah. Um, and being played by Saran Jones. Um, yes, she was sexy. But um, uh, who she was, I imagine she was just sort of someone who fell through the rift, like, like nephew or... I suppose the uh, auntie and uncle had fallen through a good number of years before and had sort of been patched together from different time lords. But I just sort of got the sense that Idris had sort of been there, you know, relatively recently and didn't really know what the whole situation was about her mind being stolen. So unless she doesn't remember it because her mind keeps getting stolen. So why should she remember it? If you're, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's certainly a story to be told there. And I think when auntie and uncle are helping her right at the beginning of the episode into this machine that supplants the TARDIS Matrix, um, into in, into Idris, she says something like, oh, it's my turn now, is it? So it makes it sound like either they've taken turns in the past or there have been others who were on House at some point who then died or something. So I think there is a story that is yet to be told there. Whether we'll actually find out what it is is a, is a different thing altogether. That makes sense, actually, just because, because Idris sort of dies fairly soon like in you know about the space of an hour after ingesting an entire TARDIS conscious in her in her mind she disperses so I imagine there's probably been a few other people like her before mm, for mm. every TARDIS eaten there's been a dispersed person before it maybe that's the case yes and then that begs the question how did they get there oh the rift okay Easy peasy, <laughs> time answer. war, whatever. <laughs> Good yeah. answer. Okay, one of the things that Glenn mentioned that I did want to pick up on was uh, the whole kind of sexy stroke sleaziness and innuendo of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not so sure about this. I mean, I, I tend to not appreciate those lines so much as some other people do. But uh, but what, what do you what do you think of that? Well, I I think um it it sort of counterplays nicely with Matt Smith's awkward performance when it comes to those things. You know, he's very embarrassed and sheepish and, and, and he's, I think he's flirting a lot more like river song this year, for instance, but he's, he's, as you saw when, when River kissed him at the end of day of the moon and he reacted very awkwardly to it. It's, it's, um, it's an empty flirt, if you will. It's a flirt, uh, done by someone who doesn't expect to have his bluff called basically so he could just sort of be all playful and such like that but you know when the chips come down to it he has no idea what to do mm. so i think uh you know if it was a really randy doctor or something like that if it was like the dr rose thing going on and Stephen moffat was writing for that i'd be terrified for the future of the show but the fact that that matt smith is, is playing off it so well i think is is you know i just love the way when you know when amy says you know did you wish really hard um, for the TARDIS to be a woman, <laughs> he goes. She's not like that, you know. He's. It's almost like a twelve-year-old kid, sort of, you know, or an eight-year-old kid telling his mum to shush when she says that he has a girlfriend at grade school, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I think it's. I think it's a nice little, uh, just a nice little opposite way of looking at things from both Moffat and Smith. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I, I think it certainly wouldn't work quite as well if the character of the Doctor you know, was pretty much like Tennant, for instance, because he was very in touch with his emotional side and it wouldn't create so many awkward, funny moments. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's all to Matt Smith's credit. And I really like the way that he's portraying a doctor now. But uh, given it's taken me quite a while to get into Matt Smith's portrayal, I am beginning to understand the way he works. And therefore, once you see how an actor owns a character and starts portraying it, in a consistent way you can see the writers responding to that therefore I think Matt Smith is getting a few more awkward moments I think it started off in A Christmas Carol where he had to sit there and watch Kazran and um, 
Um, Catherine, oh, I've forgotten the, name, the actress's name now. Some the singer. Who, who yeah, Catherine Jenkins. Think Catherine Thank Jenkins. you very much, yeah. Catherine. Yes, Catherine Jenkins, and that that then played forward into this episode beautifully with uh, with, with the bunk beds exchange and uh, and certainly the line that you mentioned. So yeah, I think that just shows how good an actor Matt Smith and um, how good he would be. I think perhaps in a completely different kind of role that was based, you know, purely on comedy. And I, I think we will see Matt Smith. Uh, do a lot more comedy in future, perhaps after his Doctor Who days. We'll uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I'm pleased that you're coming around to to enjoying Matt Smith's performance because I was I was quite distressed last year, James, when yeah. I heard that you were you weren't warming up to him because uh, he had me from he had me from Can I Have an Apple? Let's face it, his very first line. So, uh, well, yes, I I think. Um... Given that you just started a brand new podcast and the very first episode that you review, you got one of your hosts really not liking the portrayal of the Doctor. It did actually, you know, pose a few question marks over my head as as well. And I was really pleased that I warmed to him um, relatively quickly. I think certainly when we got to the Angel episodes, uh, I was prepared to concede that he was the Doctor. So <laughs> there you go. Anyway, Stephen, I think that probably wraps up this episode of the Doctor Who podcast nicely. Thank you very much indeed for, for spending the time going through the brilliant feedback that our listeners have been sending us. What, you mean we don't have a kooky theory this week? Unless you have one yourself. Well, I've just thought of one. Go on in. Okay, in that case, then, I just need to find that button to push. Hang on a second. Where is it? Ah, oh, yes. Kooky theory. Of the week. I think that the person... I only thought of this just now during the recording here, James. I hope you know this. I think that the person inside the spacesuit that kills the Doctor is Idris. Right. <laughs> well, it it's certainly qualifies on the kooky side. Yeah. Is there any more reasoning um, beyond... <laughs> any more reason to explain behind that theory? Oh, let's see. I think possibly because the doctor wanted to keep Idris alive for longer and so put her inside the spacesuit to keep her alive, but uh, eventually it would sort of play with his timeline and he realized he had gone too far and he had to be killed by the TARDIS to reset the balance. They're making this up as you go along, aren't they? I was, I was actually. It was pretty good. Very convincing. Yeah, nearly had me. Excellent. Okay, and we'll probably find out that that was correct, and that will be your first prediction on any podcast being correct. (laughs) We'll have to wait and see. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen, for joining us. Thanks for having me on there, James. And in the meantime, I'm James in London. Stephen in Edmonton. (laughs) And you out there in internet land, we'll be back on the next edition of the Doctor Who podcast. Bye for now. Funny how I just do that instinctively, you know? <laughs> like, I could just, I could end an episode anytime during Radio Free Scarlet, just saying, and I'm Stephen and Edmonton, and Warren would just go, oh, you know, mid sentence, he'll just kick in and do I'm Warren and Vancouver. There we go, that's how we do it. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.